I'll read the first couple of stanzas. There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. And I thought, wow, firstly, this woman is absolutely brilliant. And secondly, she's nailed this thing because it's the slant of light, the low light, the low sun in the winter and the afternoons when it gets dark early and it really oppresses your mood like when you're in a cathedral which is a dark place and the tunes are playing but you're feeling really grim and then it gives us a kind of a hurt inside that part of our mind where the meanings are she realized that there is a place in our brain where we store a sense of meaning or significance This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with or them. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio blast looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is FM 91.7, WHOS source at the top of the hour. I'm your host, Billy Trofesky, and like the introduction said, be sure to go to podcasttheway.com. Now, today we'll be talking about seasonal affective disorder, also known as SAD, SAD, with Dr. Norman Rosenthal, a psychiatrist and scientist who first described seasonal affective disorder and has now recently released his book, Poetry Rx, about how poems can be used to inspire, heal, and here I'll let you describe because you can probably describe it better than I can. <laughs> Firstly, so great to be on your show, Bill. I really appreciate it. And, uh, your audience sounds really cool, and so uh, hopefully uh, I will not disappoint. But in any event, um, I like doing outrageous things. And I know you said uh, we can't swear, so I won't be outrageous in the form of swearing. Uh, I have mostly been outrageous in tackling things that nobody thought were interesting or important. So you know, if there are two roads, I'll go along the road less traveled. Just to quote from a very famous poem by Robert Frost, I always want to explore where other people haven't gone. So that led me to seasonal affective disorder. I came from South Africa to Northern United States. And when winter came, I didn't know what hit me. I was slowed down. I was no longer being full of passion, like when I arrived in the long summer days. And in South Africa, you know, the seasons are not that marked. What and a state did you move to in America? Northern, I moved to New York City. New York City, okay. Yeah, so that, that's where I came. And after daylight savings time, it was like, wow, this is really something else. I still don't know why we have daylight savings time. I heard it was for farmers way back. 
And nowadays, farmers have technology, phones. They don't need that daylight savings. Or the children going to school in the mornings, getting run over. They get run over if they don't move the clock earlier so that it's light when they go to school. That's the big argument. I had no idea about that. That makes sense. So anyway, so I came to do research a little further south. I'm now in Bethesda, Maryland, and that's where the National Institute of Mental Health is. And I met another person who had the seasonal problem worse than me. And that was the start of a whole line of research uh, describing the syndrome. It's very, very common and using bright light to treat it. In fact, it's a dark day here in Bethesda and I've got a bright light right in front of me. Uh, here, I'll show you what the light looks like. See? Oh, wow. That was exciting. So, yeah. So I've got bright light even today. And that really turned out to be a very fruitful line of research. But at the beginning, they thought I was really nuts. And they would kid me. And while, I remember one colleague at a meeting she said, come, come, stand, stand here under the light with me. I'm getting a little bit depressed. So I was like the big joke, you see. And so it went. And then I, I wrote a book on the subject called Winter Blues. And I then went on to uh, write books about transcendental meditation, which has been a fantastic thing in my life. And I think it has a lot of medical benefits. And most recently, the idea that poetry can actually really, really help you is like, go away. You know, I, I'd written nine books and I came to my agents and my publishers and they didn't want to know my troubles. They said, this is poetry is like the kiss of death. Nobody's going to buy this book. And as a matter of fact, they were wrong. It's done really well. And uh, People like yourself are happy to have me on the podcast. So um, it's not for me, it's for the poetry. But I do explain it, you see, because a lot of people think of poetry as boring and old-fashioned, and I'm not going to get anything out of it. But it's just a matter of somebody showing you, hey, this is cool stuff, and here's what this poem says. And look, listen to the poet, what an incredible person he or she was. And that's what this book does with 50 poems. So that's the nut, it in a nutshell. Nice. And I like taking the initiative when somebody was even making fun of you or other people were, because nowadays I've heard of this sad disorder. I've heard of it here and there. People say, oh, winter's coming. I mean, even COVID, I feel like that had to have a major impact on it with everybody being cooped up in their houses. But if you can go back in time and tell the past you, hey, look, everybody sees it like this versus the initial reaction. I mean, that's great. I got to say that's great. You had a double whammy. The people with COVID plus SAD, they were, they were at home. They were scared. They had dealing with losses plus the darkness. So there was a whole lot of articles that people... Uh, interviewed me for on that double whammy topic of sad plus COVID. I forget the stat, but something like 33% of people or like a 33% increase or some like major increase in people now with anxiety, depression because of that double whammy. Yeah, they did. They did the survey. And from March, when the pandemic really started till September, there was an increase in all of those things that you just described. 
So you mentioned light therapy, you mentioned meditation and poetry. I guess we'll start with the poetry since you just released the book. How does poetry fight this seasonal affective disorder? Like in what way does it sort of bring people out of the rut they might be in? Well, I think the first thing is to recognize it, you know, to recognize that the problem exists. Because once you recognize a problem, you can start to treat it. And I was just beginning to study the seasonal affective disorder. And people, as I was telling you, were really quite contemptuous of it. And somebody sent me a letter. I got thousands of letters from all over the country of people that said, yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. And out of one letter, I opened the letter a poem stumbled out of the letter and uh, I read it and it was a very famous poem. I'm, I'm just finding it in my book right now. It was a very famous poem by Emily Dickinson. And here it goes. I'll read the first couple of stanzas. There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. And I thought, wow, this firstly, this woman is absolutely brilliant. And secondly, she's nailed this, this thing because it's the slant of light, the low light, the low sun in the winter uh, and the afternoons when it gets dark early. And it really oppresses your mood, like when you're in a cathedral, which is a dark place and the tunes are playing, but you're feeling really grim. And then it gives us a kind of a hurt inside, inside that part of our mind where the meanings are. She realized that there is a place in our brain where we store a sense of meaning or significance. We can find no scar. There's nothing on the outside that says there's something wrong there. We know it. There's an internal difference. And in my practice as a psychiatrist, I have a lot of people like with depression or with anxiety. And they say, you know, I wish I had a broken leg. I wish I had a cast on my arm. People could then say there's something wrong with this person. But instead, if I'm depressed, I look like I'm normal. And really, I, I really need that same kind of consideration and that same kind of understanding as people who've got a broken leg or arm. Yeah, and somebody who has like a broken leg or arm or they could get the handicap sticker and they could park up front at Walmart. And like, it's like, oh, look, you have that, you deserve that. But somebody has a mental issue and for whatever reason, they were to have that same handicap sticker, people will say, you look completely fine. What, what are you doing with that? People who really need it should be having that sticker. Right. Yes, you you absolutely nailed it there. Yeah, and they say, look, I get up and go to work, and the and the person is you know having a hard time just dragging themselves out of bed. So she realized that. So the the first thing with sad seasonal affective disorder that was so helpful to people was just recognizing recognizing the reality, the legitimacy of this as a real condition. And, and then luckily, you know, she said, there's a certain slant of light. It was the light and the light treatment that was the first really figuratively and literally a ray of hope for these people. 
You're a little bit of a poet yourself then. <laughs> yeah, I have my moments. I saw down in Florida, a sad disorder. Well, sad, it affects 1.5% of people. But then you go to New Hampshire and it's like 10%. So it's because of... That's well, exactly right. Yeah. Then Alaska must be even worse. The way to fix that is sort of throughout the day, have a bunch of bright lights on or always be in light settings. Well, there's certain... You know, the light in the morning is often the most powerful. So it's important to get the light in the morning. But sometimes people do need it on through the day if it's a dark day. And of course, getting outside, even on a cloudy day, will give you quite a lot of light. So that's definitely something you want to do. And exercise is really good. And But I think it all starts with recognizing. And, and on the theme of recognizing your feelings, I want to just share with you a, uh, a poem on that, on that subject. Uh, and um, here it goes. It's called The Guest House, and it's by a 13th century poet called Rumi. Have you heard of Rumi? I have not. Well, you're in for a treat. Okay. It's called The Guest House. Here it goes. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. That's the guest house by Rumi, and uh, it's teaching us, you can see what it's teaching us, accept your feelings. Realize that we all have good and bad feelings. You know, when I was in psychoanalysis, you know, you lie down on a couch several times a week, and you ruminate about all your stuff. And my analyst used to enjoy saying, you know, you're not all sweetness and light, you know. Like, yeah, I had mean ideas, mean thoughts, nasty. We all do. You know, this one you'd like to zap, this one you'd like to get that one back for what they did to you and stuff like that. Not all, you know, I'm going to give charity and I'm going to be so nice and I'm going to be so kind and I'm going to be a model this and a model that. We're all a mixture. And he said, well, you know, you're not all sweetness of light and light. Well, you know, kind of he was right. But it wasn't a nice way of saying it. A nicer way would be to say, it's a guest house. Every day there's new feelings. We greet them all. Some of them are going to be good ones and some of them are going to be bad ones. And that's what it's like to be human. Very much more accepting all the way from the 1200s. Rumi from Persia. Wow, okay. I like that perspective versus the other one. In the um, laughing when like uh, maybe the dark person comes to the door or what that line was. So when you have like the dark thoughts or you're upset, do you, I guess, have to laugh at it or acknowledge it? 
Well, I think acknowledge really, but he's going beyond acknowledging. He's saying welcome these things because they're part of what it means to be human. This being human is a guest house. We can't always tell which guests are going to come. Some are going to be nasty. Some are going to be pleasant, but each one is teaching us something. And uh, so that's really what he's saying. He's a very profound. He, he has... Um, there's a shrine for him somewhere in Persia. And uh, there are many, many pilgrims that continue to come to his shrine because he's so famous. Gotcha. Does the poetry sort of overlap with philosophy? Because I feel like, yeah, like it's a type of mindset of how to approach the world in the same way philosophy is. Yeah, I think I think it does. I think it really does, except that Poetry often contains a lot of emotions, a lot of the senses, feelings of feelings about things, uh, but 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 it's deep. It's got sort of deep ideas. And uh, for example, there's a, a very famous poem that really tells people how to set about living a meaningful life. You know. And yeah. I'm going to share that with you, if you don't mind, because the message here, the bigger message, is it's the journey that matters. It's the journey that matters, not just the destination. And it's by a uh, an Egyptian poet from Alexandria who wrote a poem called Ithaca. Now, Ithaca was the place at that that is the the goal of uh, Odysseus when he came back from the wars in Troy. There was a great war in Troy, and Odysseus is now coming home, and he has to go on a long roundabout way because the gods throwing him on the coast and causing him to have all kinds of adventures, and finally he's going to get to Ithaca. And so this is the journey to Ithaca that is, in a way, all of our journeys, because we're all going on a journey, and we all have our special Ithaca out there. So here you go. As you set out for Ithaca, hope that your road is a long one, full of adventure, full of discovery. Now he mentions some monsters that are in the Odyssey, Lystrigonians, Cyclops, Angry Poseidon, don't be afraid of them. You'll never find things like that on your way. As long as you keep your thoughts raised high, as long as a rare excitement stirs your body and spirit. Lystragonian, Cyclops, Wild Poseidon, you won't encounter them unless you bring them along inside your soul, unless your soul sets them up in front of you. Hope your road is a long one. May there be many summer mornings when with what pleasure, what joy, you enter harbors you're seeing for the first time. May you stop at Phoenician trading stations to buy fine things, mother of pearl and coral, amber and ebony, sensual perfume of every kind, as many sensual perfumes as you can. And may you visit many Egyptian cities to learn and go on learning from their scholars. Keep Ithaca always in your mind. Arriving there, it's what you're destined for. But don't hurry the journey at all. 
Better if it land, wealthy with all you've gained on the way, not expecting Ithaca to make you rich. Ithaca gave you the marvelous journey. Without her, you wouldn't have set out. She has nothing left to give you now. And if you find her poor, Ithaca won't have fooled you. Wise as you will have become, so full of experience, you'll have understood by then what these Ithacas mean. So may your journey be a good one. All right. That's a good way to word it too. Like Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. <laughs> but yeah, it's about the journey, not the destination. And even the, I guess when you see like depressing things or like the Cyclops, like sort of face it head on, but don't let it overtake you. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes people actually turn the people that they encounter into monsters. Like if you're angry at somebody, let's say you get into a scuffle with a shopkeeper or something and you get angry and then they get angry, you basically turn them into an angry person. Do you know what I mean? Because you've been nasty. So yeah. other people kind of treat you like the way they are treated. Yeah, you're um, rude to somebody in the mall and then when the person, second person goes home, they're thinking in their head like, man, that person was a wicked beep. That person was a, uh. but then you can say the opposite. If you go to McDonald's and then you pay for the person behind you, that person will get their free meal and sort of lighten their day. Like, wow, some random stranger gave me a free Big Mac or whatever they got. Exactly. And, and, and it feels good when you've done something nice for somebody that you made somebody else's day just that little bit better. I heard, uh, almost like karma in a sense, but they did studies that people who are nicer to other people, like in everyday life, they end up living better lives because a, what you said, you, uh, you get dopamine and you just feel good helping others, but also by helping others randomly, people sort of like to help you back in return. In Absolutely. You know, I started meditating maybe 15, 16 years ago. Transcendental meditation is the kind I do. And I do it twice a day. And, you know, it makes you feel more relaxed. It makes you feel a nicer person. And what they say in that tradition is that you get the support of nature. And that, that really is, it's like all of a sudden people are nicer to you. In one of my books, uh, I spoke with a, a lawyer uh, in Scotland who started meditating and she was known to be very prickly and she said suddenly people started treating her better they said are you on some kind of medication well she wasn't was on meditation not medication but i think the nicer we are the nicer people are to us it just makes sense if, if somebody treats you nicely you're more likely to reciprocate true not a hundred percent. You shouldn't aim for a hundred percent because there's some people they're suffering or they're just nasty for some reason, but mostly it works that way. It's a good rule of thumb. I get that. And I saw on your website and even the Reddit asked me anything you did. You were a big supporter of what's it called again? The meditation, the transcendental. Well, that transcendental med meditation. Yeah. Yes. What is that? Like, how does that work? Well, um, firstly, there are a lot of 
meditators who do that all over the country. Uh, and so if anybody's interested in it, you just go to tm.org. It's a you know nonprofit. And also, and, when I asked that, I know there's a lot of versions of meditation too. Like there's this, that too. So another follow-up after that is like, what makes that one unique than other meditations? Sure, sure. Well, the thing about it that I really like, a couple of things. Firstly, it's really easy to do. And, um, you know, like some people like running and some people like walking and some people like swimming. You kind of find the exercise that works for you. And it's the same with meditation. But what makes it different is that they give you a, a word sound or a mantra and they teach you how to use it. And when you use the sound, the way they teach it, you go into a space called the transcendent state. And the transcendent state is a very special state of consciousness. Uh, sometimes it's very floaty and very, it's like a crystalline, clear, easy state. And sometimes um, it can be very vibrant. And there's one poem actually in my book that shows you a variation between the floaty state of consciousness and the vibrancy short and I'll share it with you. But in the meanwhile, let me stick with the point of why it's different. There's mindfulness, which means focusing and being very mindful of something. It could be an image, it could be your breath, it could be a, a feeling of loving kindness. These are all forms of mindfulness. Or um, versus transcendental meditation, which is a mantra. So different strokes for different folks, basically. But um, this state of consciousness called Transcendence, that was the first book I wrote on TM, Transcendental Meditation. And I followed it up with another book called Supermind with how this grows your mind in various ways, makes you more creative, makes you more productive. As I said, makes people nicer to you. You get the support of nature. So those were two of my earlier books. What I've done in this book is there's a, a very famous poem that shows the transcendence in its different ways, both the floaty kind and the vibrant kind. And it's a famous poem by William Wordsworth called Daffodils. Have you ever heard it? I haven't, no. So you hear for another treat. <laughs> I don't list too many poems, but I should start listening to them. Well, them. well, hey, listen, you know, what, what can I say? I am the... They should call me uh, St. Jude, the, the patron saint of lost causes. No, it's not a lost cause. I feel like it's, it's seeing a resurgence because people are understanding, hey, this isn't old stuff that doesn't do anything for anybody. Song lyrics are poems put to music, and we love those. And these are just ones that sit on the page ready for you to enjoy. So here goes. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or veils and hills. So here I am, I'm floating, I'm in a floaty state. When all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Now listen to the flutter. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never ending line 
along the margin of a bay. 10,000 saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. Vibrant, you see. Now I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. So here, a guy goes out with a few relatives or friends into the countryside, sees a huge bunch of daffodils out there, comes home and lies on his couch. Nothing happens. But this is one of the most famous poems in the, in the world. In Britain, on the 150th anniversary of this poem, 150,000 school children recited it. And even though it's such an ordinary thing, in the hands of a great poet, he turns it into an unforgettable thing. He goes, he sees the daffodils, it changes his consciousness. So that even when he's back at home and he's just lying, you know when you lie down and your mind just wanders, yeah. And it goes wherever you want it to go. And so, bam, there come the daffodils. That's the, that's the poem. Gotcha. Now, if I'm doing too much poetry, you tell me, <laughs> because I can talk about lots of different things. That sounds good. The poetry is good. I like that aspect. I guess something to ask, too, is right before the poem, you were talking about, um, well, so the last guest I had for the last episode, he had this place called the Magic Garden in Denmark. He, uh, it's all about psychedelics and having people use psychedelics to sort of go through a trip and sort of enlighten in a sense. So what would your perspective be on, I know like microdosing is growing. I know, um, even Oregon decriminalized all drugs. So what about using these drugs as a form to reduce like sad or even everyday depression or whatever else? Well, it's a, it's a great question because, you know, I, I mean, one of the things I've done is not only have I given drugs for years and years and years to people to help with depression and anxiety and this and that and the other, I actually had my own center for 10 years where I tested new drugs. So I know what it takes to test drugs. And I, I ran studies like I'd get 40 people and 20 would have the drug and 20 would have placebo to see if the drug really works. And so I've got a deep respect for these chemicals. You know, our brain is like this incredible chemical factory. You know, the number of, of cells, they say is 100 billion cells and there's trillions of synapses where these cells are joining. And, and they're all communicating via chemicals with one another. Even as we're talking, our brains are these incredible chemical factories. Okay, so now you want to know if a certain chemical is going to help a person with a certain problem. Let's say you had a living room and you wanted to reorganize it. You could carefully move things around in your living room or have somebody, an expert interior decorator, move them around. 
or you could take a wrecking ball and sort of start swinging it around and see where all the chairs and tables landed up. And maybe they would land up in a better place and maybe not. So this is like an analogy I'm giving because when I'm telling you about the studies I used to do, they were very careful studies. They were very well done because these very powerful chemicals, they can have some very bad effects. And um, yes, maybe they can have some very good effects, but I think I would like to know that proper science has been done to explore when are these chemicals, how do you use them, what dose do you use them in, how often do you use them, because they can have terrible side effects. And the idea that a drug just is good you know, I, I tell you what, you didn't grow around up with this, but back when I was a child growing up, people would sit down and they would take out their cigarettes in the living room and they would light up and there would be ashtrays there and everybody would be smoking. And if anybody said, hey, listen, I don't like that smoke, you'd think they were the most terrible stick in the mud. You'd think that they were really just what kind of a person doesn't smoke? Everybody smokes. What brand do you smoke? Oh, this is my brand. This is your brand. Everybody smoked. And basically, the tobacco company had done an amazing job of addicting everybody to the cigarettes and making them feel like it was a harmless thing. And we know now much fewer people smoke now because it's kind of been really well documented. But it took decades before people realized, okay, so now... We've got a situation. I'm just going to mention marijuana because it's been decriminalized, which is fine. I don't have any problem with that. But it's so widely used that it reminds me of the cigarettes back then. Take out a joint, light up the joint. Everybody passes it around. It's no harm from it. I have had people who have had big problems with getting addicted to it, uh, you know, they have bad withdrawal when they go off of it. So I'm not saying nobody should do it. I'm just saying I would be personally very careful with my own brain chemicals. Okay, so now back to your original question. Magic garden. Well, that sounds pretty good. That sounds like good marketing <laughs> because it sounds like what can be wrong in a magic garden? flowers, beautiful things, not just regular flowers, but magical flowers. So it's already we're getting a sales pitch coming at us. And then they say, well, you know, microdosing, how much is a microdose? 200 micrograms? Well, it didn't do anything for me. Let's try 400 micrograms. All of a sudden, I'm taking the delicate chemistry of my brain and I'm starting to throw things at it, like the wrecking ball in the living room. So I would say, Yes, I'm sure there's going to be a role for, for psychedelics. I'm really glad that they're back on the scene. I really look forward. And already there is, there is some very good data coming out about it with the, the psychedelic ketamine and depression and the psychedelic MDMA and post-traumatic stress disorder. It's looking very, very encouraging. But the MDA in the post-traumatic stress disorder has to be combined with a certain kind of therapy. You can't just give somebody the stuff and let him trip out. That's not going to help, and it may be very, very scary. 
So the conditions, the context that you give it in, the conditions that you give it in are very important. So I think I'm encouraging people to study it, to really do good studies. And But personally, I wouldn't be taking the stuff. Some people may take it and get away with it, and other people may really be quite devastated by it. Not to mention the quality of the stuff you're getting and what it's being cut with. We know that a lot of um, the Xanax that you can get or anything is being cut with fentanyl, which is a powerful opiate. So you really don't know if you're not really dealing with commercial grade stuff. So I would say, be careful. Your brain shouldn't be a do-it-yourself science experiment. I am very careful with my brain. I want to be around for a long time and I want it working, working properly. And that's what I would say to your listeners. Be careful with your brains. They're so precious. Gotcha. That's a lot to take in, but I, it's a good message. I also remember hearing that these psychedelics could be a great tool. But if not used right, it could be your car is breaking down. So you want to use a tool, but if you just smash the engine, it's going to ruin the engine. But if you have a mechanic who knows what he's doing, he could actually use that tool right to fix the engine. Again, they're very powerful. So you could, like the studies show it, good improvement, but everybody's brain works differently. You don't know what works with one person could be completely different with the next. And we're not hearing about side effects, you see, because I have never seen a drug that doesn't have some side effects. So, uh, you, you know, it's all good news that we're hearing. We're not hearing about the bad news because a certain group of people are pushing a certain point of view. And I agree that, that these drugs can be very, very valuable for people. But be careful. That's all. Gotcha. Okay, I'm going to bring it back to sad now. Well, first, did you intentionally name it seasonal affective disorder so it could be called sad? I did. I did. You know, I think what you what you call something makes it stick. If you call something a magical garden versus a drug hangout, <laughs> it's, it makes a very different feeling. You know, you know what I'm saying? So SAD was just a snappy acronym. So I did think of that. I saw the one comment in Reddit was uh, when they were asking about your Reddit Ask Me Anything. One of them says, it's a little awkward at times telling people that I'm diagnosed with SAD. <laughs> and because when I picture that, it's like, oh, I'm diagnosed with SAD. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little sad too sometimes. <laughs> but exactly. Well, I, I tell you, the height of my success and fame was when I became a Jeopardy question because I didn't realize how many people watch Jeopardy, but all of a sudden I got these calls. Hey, you've made it. You're on Jeopardy. So people have strange ways of measuring success. So I guess sad was not such a bad name because people remember that. Remember, you've got to remember. That's the thing. If you if you don't remember somebody, uh, some condition, if you forget it, like, like I mean, I listened to the advert- advertisements for some of these new drugs like Ozempic. I mean, who calls something Ozempic? I mean, I don't even know what Ozempic does 
All I know is that don't use Ozempic if you're allergic to Ozempic. Now, you don't have to be a genius to figure that one out. Yeah, I forgot what it was called. <laughs> Sad or like the way to treat it was through light therapy you mentioned. Now, how much of it is the light? Yeah, that was the really, that was the really innovative element, you know. Um, so I just showed you a light box that I have here on my desk. It, it puts out a certain amount of light called 10,000 lux. That's what's been used in the research, 10,000 lux. But remember, you can put out 10,000 lux with a nice sized light, like this one that I showed you. Or you could have a teeny weeny light that puts out the same amount of light, only in a very, very small area, though. So I encourage people to get decent sized lights manufactured by, uh, there you are, you turned the light on yourself. Yeah, turn it uh, a bit. Decent, decent lights that are manufactured by a reputable manufacturer. And um, yeah, so I, I, uh, I think that, that that's really the thing to do because uh, you don't want to just get a small light that could actually hurt your eyes because it isn't fabricated properly. I don't know if this is the exact number, but I remember hearing 90% of Americans suffer from vitamin D deficiency in the wintertime. So lights, I don't know if you're getting that same UV vitamin you, you D. You know, I don't know. Yeah, it's a very, very different mechanism because the U makes vitamin D in its active form. And a lot of us are not in a lot of sunlight and we all try to avoid sunlight because we don't want skin damage from UV. And the light for SAD is visible light. So you get that from these light fixtures. So they're two different things. If you're deficient in vitamin D, which can be measured, then you definitely want to replace it. I know that uh, I, I replace my vitamin D and a lot of people do with these little uh, capsules. And so um, I encourage people to do that. It's not a sort of documented treatment for SAD, uh, but the visible light is. And whatever you do, don't expose your eyes to ultraviolet light. It can really damage the eyes. And one thing I'm curious about is when you do this research for uh, how the light impacts and what percent of Americans are affected, what did your research look like? Like, what was it like performing it yourself? Well, we estimate that one in five Americans has some kind of mood drop or behavioral drop in the winter, one in five. And then of those, a proportion of them really have it badly. So the people who have it really badly, which we call sad, one in 20. The people that have it to some degree, one in five. So it's a lot of people. And uh, more and more, it's become recognized and treated and people don't have to suffer as they used to. And one more thing, bring back to light again, I forgot to bring up, is I heard the blue lights at like the end of the day, lots of phones, laptops have filters now because supposedly the blue light keeps you awake and reduces the melatonin being released in your brain. So does that have a role into this or is that even true? Yes, that's exactly right. Well, it's interesting because when 
we started working and developed the sad story. Sad story, it sounds funny, but you know what I mean. And at that point, the only thing people thought light did for us was enabled us to see. Now what we realize is that especially when you're dealing with bright light or blue light, the light has got other effects on our body aside from helping us to see. What are those effects? Suppressing melatonin, shifting daily rhythms around, circadian rhythms earlier or later, depending on when you use the light, and reversing seasonal depression. So these are all relatively new functions from the point of view of what we're aware of. And yes, blue light is the worst. If you use it late at night, it makes you shift your sleep later. You go to bed late, you go to sleep later. So that is right. And you want to minimize the blue light and bright light in the late night so that you can get a good night's sleep. Gotcha. In the later part, I feel like these people have to be affected more. But what about night owls? I concern myself a little bit of a night owl. Well, I actually study night owls. The official term for night owl is delayed sleep phase syndrome, DSPS, delayed sleep phase syndrome. And I took a group of people who are night owls who wanted to become more in line with the daytime. And I gave them bright light in the morning and light, dim light in the evening. And sure enough, they moved early compared to a control group. And we published that. And so they got the result that they said they wanted. But if you're a real late night owl, I'll turn the question on you. Do you enjoy those late night hours? Yes. <laughs> so in the end, they didn't want to give them up. They kind of thought, well, they get some morning hours, but they'd still be able to keep their late night hours. Well, you can't do that. If you shift earlier, you're going to have to go to sleep earlier because you don't reduce your overall amount of sleep needed. You just shift the timing. And if people have felt good late at night from early childhood, they just love those hours. Nobody's around to bug them. They can do whatever they want. It's their magic garden, if I can use. Their naturally magical garden is the night. So... I think it's wonderful if you've got, is this, your, is this your only gig or do you do other things to I do a lot. bread on the table? I do a lot of uh, audio work for other people. Okay. So, yeah, if you are doing stuff which you can do any time of the night or day, no need to change your hours. But if you're a stockbroker on Wall Street or the postman or whatever, then you do need to shift your time of sleep and wake and light and dark is one way to do it. Side note, when I wake up early, I know that I can go on my uh, Weeble app account because then I could get the uh, buy and sells in the stock market because those first few minutes are the best. That's when the it's really volatile. <laughs> so yeah, then if you're that a stockbroker, you really do need to be on that clock. Was that name Weevil, did you say? Uh, Weevil. It's, it's kind of like Robinhood. It's an app on the phone. Oh, okay. So do you play with that app? Yep. I like to buy and sell. And sometimes I make money, sometimes I don't. 
And overall, how are you doing? Are you up or down? Um, up a little bit. Okay. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Over what period of time? About a year and maybe a few months. So in the end, I think okay. my profit's less than like a dollar a day. Okay, but you're having fun. Yeah, besides the stress that comes with it. <laughs> okay, so there's stress. There's a little bit of fun. You haven't lost your shirt, but you haven't bought yourself a Tesla yet. Not yet. The Tesla is the final goal. <laughs> okay, Anna, well, good luck. Thank you. I'm and rooting for you. I'm rooting for me too. <laughs> no, thank you. Stress was actually another thing that I saw came up. It, uh, I think I have a note here. But that's a stress management. Oh, you would treat that with meditation, correct? Well, you know, I don't. I usually treat things with more than one thing. So I would try to understand where is the stress coming from. Like, let's say that the weeble caused you a lot of stress. I might respectfully suggest you give it a break. <laughs> or I might suggest exercise. Or I might suggest light. Because people who are struggling in the winter are stressed. If you're struggling, if you're depressed, you're stressed. There you are. I, mean, I even made a poem that I didn't really know I was going to make. If you're depressed, you're stressed. And if you're stressed enough, you can get depressed. So I would say try to find out what the cause of the stress is. But that said, there's some things that will help every stressed person. Exercise meditation, good sleep, good, good people in your life. You've got good friends. That's a great stress reliever because you've always got someone to turn to if you're in trouble. If you're in trouble and you don't have any friends, that's more stressful. So there are a lot of things that can help with stress, not just one thing, but definitely meditation can help. And I like that getting to the root of the problem. Because I feel like that comes up a lot. I talked to um, even the Magic Garden episode that came up, but I talked to Dr. Adi Jaffe, and he talked about moderation as a cure for addiction for a lot of people. Not everybody, but a portion. And even like methadone and all that stuff. Like the way he worded it was somebody suffering from an addiction is the um, crutch, but they have like an internal problem, which is the broken foot. Now, People want to take away the crutch through like pure abstinence or something, but that crutch is what's helping them function and deal with what they're really dealing with, which is the broken foot. So it's a good approach to get to the broken foot, heal the broken foot versus focusing on the crutch. Well, I think there's a lot of muddled thinking going on with that because Sometimes if your knee or your foot needs to heal, you need a crutch to take the weight off that foot and put the weight on your arm and your shoulder while the, knee, while the foot heals. Because we know that if you keep putting weight on the foot, that's going to be bad. For example, with opiate addiction, which is very, very common, one way of treating it is with a kind of an opiate called Suboxone. Uh, and uh, Suboxone is something that gives you a little bit of opiate, but also blocks any other opiates that you're going to take. So it spares you from 
being tempted to get other opiates while giving you that opiate system a bit of a boost. So it's kind of like a crutch because it's taking the weight off that system and it's preventing damage from outside opiates. So I think these kind of analogies can be misleading. A crutch can be good. A drug can be good. A crutch can be bad. A drug can be bad. If you're using a crutch when you don't really need one, if you're using a crutch instead of getting physical therapy and healing your foot naturally. So that's why judgment is needed. That's why somebody who knows what she is doing is needed. And uh, I don't know what the qualifications of the Magic Garden Fellow are. I don't know what exactly he said. I'm just getting a sort of second-hand version. But I, I would say to your listeners, caveat emptor, the old Latin expression for buyer beware, because sometimes you can get sold a bill of goods. And sometimes the person might have something good to sell or not. Do your research. And, you, you know, professionals, like, like, you know, I've done a lot of experimental things, not drugs. Well, I have experimented with drugs, not personally, but in studies. Um, I've done these zany things like light therapy or transcendental meditation, and now poetry. I've done these kind of outrageous things. But I also got my doc medical degree, and I got my psychiatric residency, and I got trained in research. I put in my dues. And that wasn't just, that wasn't just kind of legwork or busy work. I learned a lot of things that were important for me to follow my Hippocratic Oath. And the first thing in the Hippocratic Oath says, first, do no harm. Before you start trying to do all this good, first, do no harm. And that's thousands of years old. And I would still say that's an important thing for any healer. We're, we're tampering with a precious entity, a human being, a mind, a brain. Be careful. That's all. Simple as that. Sounds good. I think that's a great point to leave it off on. Sounds good to me. So I have one last thing or one last question. Is there any final message that you want to tell the audience? Well, the first thing I'd like to tell them is if people want to find out more about me, my website is normanrosenthal.com. Come check it out. It's full of advice and blogs and information that might be useful. I've written a number of books that might be of interest. With SAD, I wrote The Winter Blues. With Transcendental Meditation, I wrote Transcendence and Supermind. If you want to hear about my own personal life story, I wrote The Gift of Adversity. That's another book. But the most recent book and the one I'm excited about right now is Poetry Rx, how 50 inspiring poems can heal, bring joy to your life, which has been my life mission to heal and bring joy. I hope it brings you a little, or even if it's just 10 minutes of entertainment, that'd be great. Sounds good. 
for the audience. If you're through the podcast, you'll see links for those in the description. And Dr. Norman Rosenthal, thanks so much for coming out to the show. Thank you for hosting me. You take care. You too. This is FM 91.7, WHUS Tours at the top of the hour. As always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Mm-hmm.